Hello and welcome to Southbank Centre's book podcast with me, Ted Hodgkinson. I'll be bringing you the finest writers, poets and thinkers from across the globe, on stage and backstage at Europe's largest art centre. Since Ted Hughes founded Poetry International here back in 1967, Southbank Centre has showcased some of the world's best writers, recently including Zadie Smith, John le Carre, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie and Philip Pullman. Whether you've missed your favourite author on stage, want to relive the moment, or hear about current trends and debates in the literary world, we've distilled it all here for you. Coming up next month, we're celebrating 50 years of the Man Booker Prize, with a festival bringing together over 60 authors, including 17 former winners, in what promises to be a once-in-a-lifetime gathering of literary titans and luminaries. Julian Barnes and Peter Carey, Hilary Mantel and Pat Barker, Kazuo Shiguru and Michael Ndache are just a few of the authors appearing in conversation with each other. And the closing event of the festival crowns the Golden Man Booker Prize, the best of the winning novels from the last five decades. You can get tickets to the events in the festival, which runs from the 6th to the 8th of July. Go to southbankcentre.co.uk. Ahead of this major celestial happening in the literary firmament, we thought we'd bring you four previous Man Booker winners and stars reading and in conversation here at Southbank Centre, where we've hosted their shortlist readings for the past 11 years. Eleanor Catton, Richard Flanagan, Marlon James and George Saunders. I'll also be interviewing the literary director of the Booker Foundation, Gabby Wood, about what goes on behind the scenes in judging meetings, what makes a Man Booker winner, and the thinking behind the decision to open up the prize to American authors. Up first, we're going to hear an extract from Eleanor Catton's previous appearance here at Southbank Centre. She won the Man Booker Prize in 2013 for her novel The Luminaries, an extraordinary, capacious and ambitious novel set and inspired by the 1860s gold rush in New Zealand. It has a remarkable, celestially inspired structure. Here, Eleanor Catton, in interview with Jonathan Ruppin, will talk about that structure and her own experiences of growing up in New Zealand and how that shaped her writing and her novel. Gold, at the centre of the book. But I presume this is also the reason for this other extraordinary system that you've imposed upon the book of the golden ratio. If anybody's not familiar with the golden ratio, this is the Fibonacci sequence, this is phi. So one plus one is two, one plus two is three, two plus three is five, and so on. And you get the, you get this whole sequence of numbers, and it's called the golden ratio, and it has and it, it appears in so many things in nature. And you've used it to determine the lengths of your chapters. Why did you decide, having already imposed <laughs> a system of astrology on the book, why did you decide to, to, to work with this as well? This... Yeah, this, this is a, an aspect of the structure actually that I haven't quite pulled off. Um, I knew that at the, as I was writing that I had a, a number of balls in the year and that that was always going to be the first one to go because it was the most silly and kind of arbitrary. Um, so the golden ratio is, you know, will probably be familiar to everybody in, uh, in terms of visual art. We often perceive that faces that are in the golden ratio where the uh, features of the face are, you know, distributed and in golden ways are more beautiful than faces that aren't and even something like a, a book like this the length of the most books are like this it's just the same as most doorways and um, the length of the short side is in got the golden ratio to the length of the long side because we just there's something about this harmony that we really appreciate as human beings 
This is kind of another one of the rivers that fed into this kind of confluence of ideas when I was first thinking about writing the book. I'd been reading this really wonderful book called Gödel Escher Bach, which is just, I really recommend. It's by, a, um, I guess, a computer scientist named Douglas Hofstetter. In this book, he talks about the mathematician Gödel, the painter M.C. Escher, who does the, you know, the hands drawing themselves, and also the musician Bach, and um, talks about how each of these thinkers were able to, in effect, create self-replicating systems, systems that were that kind of gained the power to speak about themselves. And the simplest example is the MC Escher's hands that are drawing themselves. It kind of becomes a what D Douglas Hofstetter calls a, a, a strange loop. And when I was reading this book, I was having an argument with some friends um, who are also studying at the University of Iowa. And we were talking about why it was that none of these people in this title were working with language, why they were, it was a mathematician, a musician, and a, and a, a visual artist. And you know, if there could be one person that we would put there, who would it be? We agreed upon Shakespeare, not, not for the kind of humanity of his work, but for his obsession with paradox, actually. The paradox then kind of came back to mm. it. And then we started talking about the golden ratio and how maybe that could even work in a fictional environment, whether we would find it beautiful in the same way that we find it beautiful when we see it spatially. Anyway, so somewhere along the, the line, I had been reading this Martin Buber book, I and Thou, and I was looking at the formula for the golden ratio, which is, um, so I'll try and get this right, I, I always get it backwards, but if you call the long side A and the short side B, the golden ratio would be to say that B is to A, what A is to A plus B. So that's how they're, they're in re relation. And I was thinking about this ratio and thinking about Martin Buber, and I suddenly thought this, was, this is such a beautiful metaphor for a human relationship, where instead of saying A and B, you could say I and thou, where you could say I am to you what you are to both of us. And this kind of, for me, really beautifully encapsulated what it means to be in love with somebody. You're not just saying I love you and I, you love me, in, in which case you're kind of stiff and not really in relation to one another. But you're kind of saying that my selfhood is entirely dependent upon your selfhood and the way that we are together, even if we look at it from my point of view or look at it from your point of view, we can never quite extract who we are from this kind of golden spiral that twirls down and down. So that was kind of the way that it worked out. And then about a few months of kind of tussling with this idea and seeing how I could build it into the narrative where I realised that obviously golden ratio and gold rush, like there's kind of a lame pun in there. Um, but that wasn't the real reason. That's, that's the kind of the lame afterthought. That was Eleanor Catton in conversation about her novel The Luminaries, which incidentally I'm reading at the moment. And although it is an enormous undertaking at around 900 pages, it is totally immersive and thrilling and gripping and lyrically and beautifully written. I highly recommend it. Eleanor Catton will be here at the Man Booker Festival in conversation with Colin Toybean, Elizabeth Carlson and Christopher Hampton on the 7th of July at an event about adaptations called Page to Screen. She'll also be in a panel discussion called Genre Benders, which I'm chairing, on the 8th of July, along with Paul Beattie, Deborah Levy and Graham McRae Burnett. And that's about experimental fiction. And now we have a clip from the winner of the 2014 Man Booker Prize, Richard Flanagan. Flanagan's book, The Narrow Road to the Deep North, is about prisoners of war who were forced by the Japanese to work on the death railway that joined Thailand to Burma in the Second World War. His father was one of them, and this novel is a tribute of sorts. He's being interviewed here on stage at the event. 
Richard, your father was on the death railway, and the day that you finished your manuscript, he died. That generation, particularly, kept so much locked within. In a way, did you write this book to give it a voice to that experience? I really grew up as a child of the death railway that um, man survives by his ability to forget, but uh, those around them are sometimes filled with the strange, incommunicable wounds they bring home with them, and it falls to others to um, somehow seek to communicate them. I realised back in about 2001, more and more, that this was a story that I didn't want to write it, but I needed to write it. And I was in Sydney walking across the Sydney Harbour Bridge, which is uh, very beautiful in the late afternoon. And I remembered a story that my parents were fond of about a Latvian man who um, lived in the little town I was born in. He'd had one of those horrific wars in Eastern Europe where he'd been caught up in those um, great tidal movements of people, swept away from Latvia. And when he made it back at war's end, it was to find his village razed to the ground and his wife, he was told, dead. He refused to believe this and he searched that um, apocalyptic world of Eastern Europe for the next two years, seeking to find her. And at the end, he had to recognise that she was indeed dead. He immigrated to Australia, ended up in this tiny little town in Tasmania, married an Australian woman and had a family. In 1957, he went to Sydney and he was walking down a crowded street there and he saw walking toward him his Latvian wife with a child on either hand. And at that moment, he knew he had to either acknowledge her or walk on. And growing up, I always thought that was the most beautiful story of, of love that I knew about the way love exists in categories beyond good and evil, about its strange and terrible power and the, mm. the things it demands of us. I was halfway across the bridge. I sort of saw a, a, a prisoner of war many years after the war walking across that same bridge, seeing a woman he thought had been dead and um, having to make that same choice. And I rushed back to a pub in the rocks and borrowed a biro off a barman and I wrote that chapter out on the back of beer coasters and that's where this novel began. Right. The um, description of the violence is visceral, I mean, that, that is meted out, uh, also the emotional violence as well. But I was interested to read in The Guardian on Saturday, I had not appreciated that you had gone to Japan and had met a very elderly man called The Lizard who'd been one of your father's company's tormentors. Yeah, and you asked him to slap your face, which of course was the start of the punishment that was often meted out to the men. The lizard was um, hated by the Australians and he was the only man I ever heard my father, who was a very gentle man, speak of with violent intent. He was sentenced to death for war crimes uh, after the war, had the sentence commuted to life imprisonment and subsequently was released in a general amnesty in 1956. Mm -hmm. And I went to Japan to try and find some of the guards. But the Death Railway was a vast pharaonic project of over a quarter of a million people. Mm. I, I never expected to find one who had yeah. been at my father's camp. And then about five minutes before I met the lizard, uh, I realised who he was. He'd changed his name. He was a gentle and gracious old man. We talked for about an hour and a half. And then I, I, I don't know why, but I asked him to slap me. And uh, on the third slap, the whole room started to shake up and down and move around me and I, I thought I was going mad, to be honest. But in fact, in one of those coincidences which um, 
novelists are not allowed but reality delights in, a 7.3 Richter scale earthquake had hit Tokyo. <laughs> and uh, and I, I looked, and he, I'd never been in an earthquake before, and um, so I wasn't frightened. But he did, and I was looking at this frightened old man, and I realised wherever evil was, it wasn't in that room with uh, me and him. That was Richard Flanagan. Up next, we have an interview with the literary director of the Booker Foundation, Gabby Wood. I talked to her about what goes on behind the scenes of judging the prize, what makes a man book a winner, and her decision to open up the prize to American authors. I wondered if you could just start by telling us what your job entails. Yes, so there are various bits to it, but the main thing is, and I don't do this unilaterally, there is a, an advisory committee and there are trustees, of course, but I choose the judges for the prize each year. So they change, as you know, they change each year. There are five judges, including a chair, and that is the the main job really to get the balance of those people right but of course the Booker Prize Foundation also does other work there are two prizes for a start I don't sort of primarily look after the international prize but I do work with Fiumetta Rocco who does and also there's charitable work so work in prisons work in schools work in libraries universities and a fellowship actually at the University of East Anglia so there's a, a new writer who comes up every year and that's really interesting also to read those applications and think about not single-handedly but who you might foster it's quite varied but I suppose the thing that the people care about most or the central thing is the is the panel of judges and so you're involved in in really shaping that panel and and making sure that balance is right how much Mm. are you involved once you selected the judges Uh, well not at all in terms of influencing them I poured the tea (laughs) (laughs) it's a very important job Um, something stronger occasionally exactly I'm in charge of what they consume Um, (laughs) I you know I arrange for them to meet and they meet about once a month and I take notes in those meetings and sometimes there is a, a reason to remind them of what they thought and so I sort of consult the notes um I mean, I very rarely intervene. If you've chosen the right chair, you don't need to. Sometimes questions come up about eligibility or how, how I suppose, we would like them to think about books. But once you set that in motion, they tend to have their own discussions. I mean, they tend to set their own agenda, really, each time. I don't have... Yeah, I'm glad to say I have very little influence. <laughs> <laughs> Probably being quite modest about no, that. No, but in terms of there are these um, slightly mythologised stories about judges' meetings and, you know, Philip Larkin saying, I'm going to jump out the window if this book doesn't win. And, yes, I wish know, I'd been there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, tea was thrown and all of that kind of thing. I mean, in your experience in, in being the literary director, how often does it devolve to that level of fisticuffs? Yeah, annoyingly, that's never happened yet. Um, actually, I, I do sort of partly choose them on what I anticipate, how I anticipate they'll get on. I was going to say on the basis of their character, but it's not quite that level of assassination. I mean, I do try and think about the group. So it's partly their literary tastes, partly their styles of argument and whether they're likely to listen to each other. So I suppose that's all, that all goes together. So if you've got a panel of judges with, with any luck, quite different opinions or different experiences of reading then you have to think about whether they're going to bring those to each other in a way that's convivial you hope that they'll in some ways change each other's minds or at least 
at least work together. And so, so actually, I mean, I've been lucky in that those things have come off. I mean, there haven't been any great tantrums, but some of them have been really interestingly Machiavellian, and I've learned a lot from that. <laughs> <laughs> no, not, not naming any names. No, exactly. The chair must be really crucial in that, in steering that. And, yes. and perhaps particularly when it comes to navigating debates that are raging out in the world at large or in, in the literary community how does it work when those debates sort of threaten to come into the judging room and take over that's an interesting question I mean on the whole they don't really come into the judging room I mean I've thought a lot about chairs and what's required I suppose because there are two two sides of it one is what happens within the judging room and another is how it's seen by the world so of course you want to show the world well, I suppose, uh, distinction, diversity, and so on. But within, and, and within the judging room, that's also important because you need a variety of experience. So, for example, if you had five white male judges, I'm sure it's possible that you'd end up with a long list that was all white men. And if you have a different panel, then you are actually just not going to end up with that. I mean, it's not a question of controlling it or influencing it. It's just, it's just not what people are drawn to. And so, you know, that's in everyone's interest. But... But there is something much more sort of nitty-gritty that happens in the judging, which is much less to do with how it, it's seen by the outside world. And that is to do with what the chair, how the chair runs things. And I suppose there are two things. One is that the chair has to be someone who's very good at getting other people to talk and listen to each other. So that could be anyone who's good in that situation without any literary critical qualifications. And the other thing is how you want the agenda to be set, the literary agenda to be set, and whether you want that to be set by the chair or whether you could have someone else in the group who was lifting the level of conversation. In a way, I think it doesn't matter if that's the chair or not. But there was one occasion, actually, when I was a judge in 2011, which was the most... But I don't know if it was the most controversial year. I can't claim that, but it was definitely accused of being the most Philistine year. So <laughs> in terms of judges. And that was because Stella Remington, who was the chair, had said she was looking for readable books. And Chris Mullen, another sort of fellow panellist of mine, said that he liked books that zipped along. And neither of these are particularly offensive things to say in themselves, but the, they were taken up. And then the whole long list was judged to be somehow idiotic, which I felt upset about because I thought well these writers have written these but I mean imagine if you were on that long list how terrible you'd feel if you were the writer so I suppose sometimes there is a, a strange relationship of inside the room and outside you know but on the whole they the judges concentrate incredibly hard and are very unaffected by outside debates. Speaking of controversies, um, <laughs> the recent discussion about whether to allow Americans into the prize and some, some critics saying that that might have been a mistake. I mean, how have you found the response to that and what do you think should happen? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. I mean, I wasn't involved with the prize when that decision was made, but oddly enough, but I was a journalist and oddly enough, I thought it was a good decision, mainly because why not choose amongst, you know, the best amongst all of the books available here? Now that I'm at this end, I do think that on the whole, the prize is a prize for readers, or at least it's a prize that benefits readers. And readers don't pick up a book and say, oh, hang on, I need to check this author's passport before I read any further. So I think it's actually a very democratic way of approaching it. I think within the industry, there are some 
issues raised, have been some issues raised by publishers in particular, sometimes by writers, although I, I, I tend to be less influenced that by that because I think the writers feel insecure and I think there's no reason to feel insecure. I think that British and Commonwealth writers can easily stand up to Americans. I don't automatically think Americans are better at all. So I think there's less of a problem than they seem to think. In publishing terms, I'm sympathetic to it and sensitive to particularly to the accusation that or the suggestion that there are voices we won't hear as a result. One of the arguments is that because in the past, if you've been on the Man Booker long list, that has really been able to make a book. Publishers make a calculation in anticipation of that. So in the hope that a difficult book or a quiet book will be long listed. And they feel that it's very difficult to draw attention to it otherwise. And now they're saying that they are less able to take risks on those sorts of books. And therefore, we are somehow silencing voices that we ought to be ought to allow to be heard and I'm not entirely convinced by the tail wagging the dog aspect of that but I am sensitive to the idea that over time there might be voices that we don't end up hearing and so you know I think we ought to continue to think about that and keep an eye on it but it's not really a question of reversing the decision so much as understanding its effects. And it's interesting that you make the point about confidence that British and Commonwealth writers should have the same confidence and perhaps that's one of the things the prize aims to do is to is to sort of boost confidence in writers who you know to have debuts alongside the big Absolutely. Hitters. Yeah. I mean one of the suggestions was that we should have a separate prize for first novels and I just thought, well hang on a minute, first I mean, it's the same in a way. Anyone you want to split off, it suggests that they're either less likely to win or more likely to win. So if you if you make the argument that Americans should have their own prize, you're automatically suggesting, well, they're in a category of their own and therefore they should have their own prize. If you say debut authors should have their own prize, you're saying, well, they're not as good, so they can have their little baby prize. You know, that's just not how it works. I mean, people should have confidence. And also, I think I am mindful of that in thinking about judges. You know, sometimes people say to me, well, I, I read more American novels than anything else, or I do think Americans are better, or they'll say this quite casually, and I will make a mental note not to hire that person for this particular job. I mean, they might be good judges of the International Prize, or that, you know, but they can't have that as an automatic or even an, an unconscious assumption, I think. So in your view, it's just a question of when a British or Commonwealth writer will next win the Booker Prize? Um, yeah, and there's no way of managing that. You know, it's just to do with the quality of the book and how that book fares against the other books published that year. I mean, in that respect, it is quite random. I mean, if you're reviewing books, you're not comparing them to each other on a chronological basis. You're not saying, oh, there's this book, but how does it look next to this completely different book that was published last week? It is a strange process and an artificial one. So you've segued into my last question, which is really <laughs> about, um, obviously the books are really distinctive and in a sense, as you say, it's kind of random, but can you identify shared characteristics or qualities that make a Man Booker Prize winner? I can't, although I think that over time things have shifted in that it's, mm, how can I say, it's sort of gratifyingly less predictable. And that's partly because of the industry itself. So when the prize was established in 1969 for prizes, for, for books published in 1968, you know, it was quite a small world, the writers and readers, limited numbers of readers, and most of the writers lived, you know, as it were, in Hampstead. And so now it's very different. Now the writers can come from anywhere. The reach of the prize expands all over the world. And so that makes it much, much harder to predict what's going to win, and that's really good. But actually, I do also have a sort of personal, if I'm, I wouldn't call it an agenda, but a personal hope that we could break down these ideas of what 
what a sort of literary novel is or should be. In fact, I'm trying to ban the word literary fiction, but it's not working. <laughs> um, just, just on the grounds that, you know, it's either a good novel or it's not. And if it's a genre novel or if it's a novella or if, you know, it, there, there's so much hybrid fiction around now that's good. And if you're a writer, you shouldn't be thinking in those forms anyway. You should be thinking, what, what do I want to write next? And so as a reader, I think we should all also be responding to that, thinking, well, what do I want to read that's really, really good and so I hope that judges in future will also think in that way and not think is this the kind of novel that should win they'll just think do I want this novel to win <laughs> and in terms of the festival that's happening here in July I mean is that do you feel like that's an opportunity for writers who are kind of genre bending and you know the likes of Marlon James or Eleanor Catton and so on who are really kind of visionaries at the front of that kind of sea change and maybe doing away with the term literary fiction altogether is that an opportunity for those things to be advanced to, to tell them to stop using the word yeah, yeah. <laughs> tell them off yeah no um well people will see it for themselves won't they and also it's not to cancel out more traditional forms either it's just that all these things should exist although one of the judges one of recent judge said to me about a, a novelist she said the thing is the book's not perfect but she's the only person who understands that the novel is a problem and I think having a problem is a very productive way to think. I don't think it's something that needs to be solved. I think it's something that needs to be reflected on. And so the novel as problem is something energizing, if we could think of it that way. Then, of course, there have been people who have shown that to be interestingly true. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Gabby. Thank you. That was Gabby Wood talking about the thinking that goes on behind the scenes at the Man Booker Prize. Next up, we have Marlon James. When Marlon James won the Booker Prize in 2015, he became the first Jamaican author to do so, and so sure he wouldn't that he didn't even write an acceptance speech, but what a speech that was. A Brief History of Seven Killings is set in 1970s Jamaica. It's about an anonymised Bob Marley, imagining his attempted assassination that's become a popular mini-genre in recent years. Here's a clip from when he was interviewed here by Mariella Frostrup. He's talking about why he felt the need to return to 1970s Jamaica, a politically turbulent decade he experienced firsthand. The events that the book centres around yes. occurred in 1976 when you were six years old and mm -hmm. still living in Kingston. And I wondered what it was that had encouraged you to return to that particular period, what it was about it that you wanted to document. I think I just had this, because I was six in 1976, and despite having um, a detective for a mother and, and a lawyer for a dad, I still had a six-year-old's view of 1976. For me, a, a crisis was Starsky or Hutch. Uh, for all of us. Yeah, Superman <laughs> or Batman. And it's not that I felt like I missed out on the 70s, but there was a, a certain way of experiencing that decade that my parents had to go through. Even though it's a really big story about Bob Marley and so on, what I really was trying to find was the 76 my parents went through. You know, how violent, how testy, but also how creative it was. And it became this sort of fact-finding mission. It's funny that Marley's the center of it, but because he was, in a lot of ways, the afterthought. I was thinking, oh yes, well, he definitely must be a huge reggae fan. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and that's not even the case. Not really, I love reggae, but reggae's like, you know, reggae's like a family member. It's great, but please leave. Um, was it the Pet Shop Boys I saw listed? Is it I, yeah, I remember, I remember somebody really, the Jamaican is in the room and they're ready to bond over 
Dillinger and Mighty Diamonds. And I'm actually into Pet Shop Boys and New Order. <laughs> Did you find you were a bit lonely? Yeah, I'm, I'm here looking for the new Cure album. <laughs> <laughs> You've described yourself as Dickensian, not in terms mm-hmm. of the fact that you think you're as skilled as Charles Dickens, I hasten God, to no. add, or maybe you do. But I think, I wondered in what way you, you feel that you and his paths merge. Well, one, because I, I grew up reading the Victorians. My first exposure to the novel were the Victorian novels, to the point where I started to think Dickens and that London were contemporaries. But also, one of the things that Dickens really did, and um, I think most of the crime fiction writers are doing it now, is to tell a really big story through the so-called marginal people. Whether it's Oliver Twist or even Bleak House, these aren't the people that make the history books, but they make history. I wondered whether you'd set out with your full cast when you started writing the book, or whether there were voices that just kept demanding to be heard and pushing other people out of the way. Somewhere in between. I hadn't said no, I had no intentions of writing such a big cast. I had intended on writing my shortest novel. The first page I wrote is now on page 458, <laughs> because it was, it was about this gay hitman with boyfriend issues trying to kill this Jamaican. The end. And That's good. Yeah. That's good. And um, I, I couldn't end it. And, and for a long time, I thought the solution was to keep starting new books with new characters. And a friend of mine pointed out, you know, you're right, you've been writing one novel all along. All those failed novels had Marley in it, and I still didn't see it. <laughs> until somebody you think he was just a motif. You right. Know. So it's not this big thing that sprang out. It's this series of spotty things that sort of merged. You've said that violence should be violence. It is incredibly visceral, this Mm -hmm. book, and very, very violent in places. When you say violence uh, should be violence, what do you mean? I think um, writers have to be very careful when we deal with any form of extreme, whether it's violence or sex or so on, because I'm also a big believer that sex should be explicit too. But I think you have to hit that midway between underrepresenting it and you end up with a sort of superhero movie type of violence Superman is fighting in New York and somehow eight million residents magically vanished in time for the fight. At the same time, you don't want to go into the other direction where you end up with a sort of pornography and readers, far from being horrified, become numb. But I do think that violence should be disturbing. It's pretty disturbing for the person who has to suffer for it, suffer through it. The characters, or whether they're real or people we write about, are people who will live with and move beyond it. Given that the most we're having is a, is a standing experience, I'm very adamant about readers sort of going through that. I'm not trying to subject them to torture, but I think that the whole range of experience from the good to the absolutely horrendous is something that, they sh- that should be shared. And I think the great thing about literature, and I hope it still is, is that it allows us the entry into these worlds, sometimes unpleasant worlds, vicariously. Thank you very much, Marlon James. Thank you. Marlon James will be here at Man Booker 50 Festival in conversation with Alan Hollinghurst, another virtuoso stylist, on the 7th of July. He'll also be in a panel discussion about the future of the novel on the 8th of July. Finally, we're going to hear from the most recent winner, George Saunders, reading an extract of his novel Lincoln in the Bardo, which won in 2017. Saunders, best known for his short stories, was the second American in a row to win after Paul Beatty the year before. He was one of three Americans on the shortlist, which has been a source of enduring interest in media discussions about the prize, as I discussed with Gabby Wood earlier. 
Lincoln in the Bardo is a novel set in a cemetery where Abraham Lincoln is mourning the death of his son. Like Marlon James's novel, it was based on historical events. Lincoln, a Civil War president of the US, really did spend a night in the crypt embracing his son's body. It is a polyphonic, experimental, exploding star of a novel, and I couldn't recommend it highly enough. In this clip, he explains the background of the novel and then perhaps, out of necessity, ends up reading a clip, which is a relief to me. Let's just listen to it. Uh, this is a pretty strange book, and a pretty strange book to read from, but uh, basically the story was inspired by something I heard about 20 years ago, and the story was that when Abraham Lincoln was president, his favorite son, this kind of beloved boy, died, and Lincoln was apparently so grief-stricken, the newspapers at the time said, that he actually went into the crypt on several occasions to somehow interact with the boy's body. So I heard this about 20 years ago and, and uh, finally got around to writing it about five. So the book is kind of weird because who's going to narrate this? You know, Lincoln, four score and seven minutes ago, I did come into this graveyard. Or maybe the gravedigger practicing at night. I don't know. It doesn't. So um, it's basically narrated by a chorus of ghosts. In the scene we're gonna, I'm going to try to read, Lincoln has just been into the crypt. He's held Willie's body. And he's trying to leave the graveyard, but he's so heartsick he can't. So he sits down in some grass. And two of the ghosts who uh, just witnessed this event come over and uh, are kind of curious about what he's thinking. And in this world, if a ghost enters the body of a living person, the ghost can actually read that person's mind. So if this theater is haunted and a ghost occupies you, madam, it can read your mind. So be careful what you're thinking. Uh, yeah, so, and I think that's all you need to know. I'm going to try to do the different voices and we'll see how it goes. What will happen is there'll be two voices that will probably sound identical except to me, and then, um, and then Lincoln's voice will appear. All right. Chapter 43. We found the gentleman, as had been described to us, near Bellingweather, husband, father, shipwright, sitting cross-legged and defeated in a patch of tall grass. As we approached, he lifted head from hands and heaved a great sigh. He might have been, in that moment, a sculpture on the theme of loss. Shall we, Mr. Volman said, I hesitated. The Reverend would not approve, I said. The Reverend is not here, he said. 44. In order to occupy the greatest percentage of the gentleman's volume, I lowered myself into his lap and sat cross-legged just as he was sitting. The two now comprised one sitting man, Mr. Volman's greater girth somewhat overflowing the gentleman. It was quite something quite something in there. Bevins, come in, I called out. This is not to be missed. I went in, assuming the same cross-legged posture, and the three of us were one, so to speak. 45. There was a touch of prairie about the fellow. Yes. Like stepping into a summer barn late at night, or a musty plains office where some bright candle still burns. Vast. Windswept. New, sad, spacious, curious, doom-minded, ambitious. The gentleman tried to see his dead boy's face. Couldn't. Tried to hear the dead boy's laugh. Couldn't. Attempted to recall some particular incident involving the boy in hope this might, the first time we fitted him for a suit, Thus thought the gentleman. This did the trick. First time we fitted him for a suit, he looked down at the trousers and 
then up at me, amazed, as if to say, Father, I'm wearing grown-up pants. Shirtless, barefoot, pale round belly like an old man's, then the little cuffed shirt and buttoning it up. Goodbye, little belly, we are insuring you now. Insuring, I do not believe that is even a word, Father. I tied the little tie, spun him around for a look. We've dressed up a wild savage, looks like, I said. He made the growling face. His hair stuck straight up, his cheeks were red. Racing around that storage as previous, he had knocked over a rack of socks. The tailor, complicit, brought out the little jacket with much pomp. Then the shy, boyish smile as I slid the jacket on him. Say, he said, don't I look fine, father? Then no thought at all for a while, and we just looked about us, bare trees black against a dark blue sky. Little jacket, little jacket, little jacket. This phrase sounded in our head. A star flickered off, then on. Same jacket he's wearing back in there now. Huh. Same little jacket, but he was wearing it as... I so want it not to be true. Broken. Pale, broken thing. Why will it not work? What magic made it work? Who is the keeper of that word? What did it profit him to switch this one off? Everything nonsense now. Those mourners came up, hands extended, sons intact, wearing on their faces enforced sadness masks to hide any sign of their happiness, which, which went on. They could not hide how alive they yet were with it, with their happiness at the potential of their still-living sons. Well, until lately, I was one of them, strolling, whistling through the slaughterhouse, able to laugh and dream and hope because it had not yet happened to me, to us. Horrible trap. It's at one's birth, it is sprung. Some last day must arrive when you will need to get out of this body. Bad enough. Then we bring a baby here. The terms of the trap are compounded. That baby also must depart. All pleasures should be tainted by that knowledge, but hopeful, dear us, we forget. Lord, what is this? All of this walking about, trying, smiling, bowing, joking, this sitting down at table, pressing of shirts, tying of ties, planning of trips, singing of songs in the bath, when he is to be left out here? Is a person to nod, dance, reason, walk, discuss as before? A parade passes. He can't rise and join. Am I to run after it, take my place, lift knees high, wave a flag, blow a horn? Was he dear or not? Then let me be happy no more. So that's all we've got time for, but next month we'll be bringing you some of the best bits from Man Booker 50. You can get tickets at southbankcentre.co.uk. If you want to find out more about literature and spoken word events at Southbank Centre, go to southbankcentre.co.uk, or if you want to join the conversation, follow us on Twitter.